Good morning, church. A couple of announcements here briefly. We will be doing communion at the end of this message, so if you didn't get that message, you can get some juice and some bread and and take that with us this morning as the church united through the love of Christ. And also the 26th, when we're at the park and lake, our, our launch day, when we're back together, um, we're going to have a baptism. So, you know, as God lays out on your heart, if uh, that's something that you'd like to do, just call the office or uh, text me or, or Steve or tell one of us, up, up, uh, the staff, that that's what you want to do. Tyler's message this morning is remember the celebration. Yesterday was July 4th. July 4th is Independence Day or also known as America's birthday in the United States. We celebrate the 4th of July because it represents the day that America became separate from British rule. Under British rule, the colonists were unhappy with Britain, British government. They felt they were unfairly taxed and had no vote in the laws that affected them. It sounds familiar somewhat today in America to a degree. July 4, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was signed, giving the United States independence from Great Britain. America celebrates the 4th in many ways. Uh, my favorite, I suppose, is fireworks. Over the years, I've had uh, a lot of fun with fireworks, with the oohs and the ahs, and um, eating together and just being family. Here is my favorite 4th of July clip from the movie that, my grandson's watched a thousand times. It's called Sandlot. Let's watch. Let's go. Come on, get your clubbing. Come on. It's the big deal. Night game. Come on. Come on. Mom, slow down. In liberating strife. There was only one night game a year. On the 4th of July, the whole sky would brighten up with fireworks, giving us just enough light for a game. We played our best then, because I guess we all felt like the big leaguers under the lights of some great stadium. Benny felt like that all the time. We all knew he was going to go on to bigger and better games, because every time we stopped to watch the sky on those nights, like regular kids, he was there to call us back. You see, for us, baseball was a game. But for Benjamin Franklin Rodriguez, baseball was life.
Everything is good, and it, it, it's on your face. It's in your voice. It, uh, some people think there's something wrong with you. Chuck Swindoll's sister Lucy writes this, and I quote, The higher and most desirable state of the soul is to praise God in celebration for being alive. Without perks, our lives are easily lost in the world of money, machines, anxieties, or inertia. Our poor, splendid souls, how they fight for food. They have forgotten how to celebrate. They have forgotten how to request little perks. Our hurried and stressful busy lives are unquestionably the most dangerous enemy of celebrating life itself. Somehow we must learn how to achieve momentary slowdowns and request from God a heightened awareness of the conception that life is a happy thing, a festival to be enjoyed rather than a drudgery to be endured. Life is full of perks if we train our souls to perceive them, the thousand tiny things from which one can weave a bright necklace of little pleasure for one's life. End of quote. It's so true, isn't it? But you ever thought about why we tend to be uncomfortable with life's little pleasures? It's like we don't deserve them. Why we seem more comfortable with lamentations than with celebrations. Maybe the reason is because we focus on the past with a sigh. <sighs> We see the negative instead of the positive. Here's an example from our history that illustrates my point about the past and getting negative, being negative for some. From May through July 1863, Vicksburg, Mississippi, a strategic important city on the Mississippi River, was besieged by federal forces under the command of General Ulysses S. Grant and by a flotilla of gunboats in the river commanded by Admiral David Porter. The city was surrounded by outlying Confederate lines of defense, but the Union forces also shelled the city itself, which was full of civilians who dug caves into the clay hills of Vicksburg for protection from the artillery bombardment. The siege lasted 47 days until the city and its Confederate defenders were at last starved into submission. They were eating horses and anything they could find to eat. It was a sad situation. The Confederate commander, General John C. Pemberton, surrendered on July 4th, 1863. So bitter were the feelings and memories of the people of Pittsburgh afterwards that they did not officially observe Independence Day holiday for the next 81 years, not returning to observance until 1945. That is an amazing thing, isn't it? When you talk about the past that has, has affected you and how it affected these people, that they didn't even celebrate that our independence from Britain, they tied it to the Union troops surrounding them and putting them in such dire straits. 
I think sometimes we look over the past with a sigh. We let the air out, air which is remorse and weariness and sadness. When we walk down memory lane, our thoughts tend to travel down four well-trodden paths. Those paths circumscribe certain people, events, circumstances, and decisions. Sometimes when we travel down those melancholy paths, we do so with heavy sighs and heavy hearts and a negative, dramatic mindset, allowing the bad to always override the good in our lives, to override the memories, allowing complaining and finger-pointing to lead the way instead of looking on the positive, uplifting, celebratory side of these issues that face us in life. Looking for the silver lining for a change. First, first let's look at people. Unfortunately, the people we remember most are often the ones that's hurt us rather than the ones who have helped us. The insensitive rather than the inspirational. For the Jews living in Persia in the time of Esther, Haman was the person they would have remembered most and they would have sighed. And in that sigh, their hatred would have risen back up and like a cancer affecting their very being. Events. When we look back at events, our minds tend to catalog catastrophes rather than celebration. We remember with clarity the Titanic, Vietnam, Watergate, the space shuttle disaster, the Gulf War, our involvement in Iran, Iraq, and Afghanistan, 911, and now the pandemic of COVID-19 and how that has affected Mary, and the terrible murder of George Floyd and how that has transpired into our life and events and affected our whole nation. You know what? Someday this will be over, and hopefully when we remember this, we will not always focus on the negative, but we will focus on what God has done in our lives during this pandemic, during riots, during all the things that's happening in our world today, all the unrest. And we look back on what God has done for us during this time. Hopefully you have some good stories that has brought your family closer together, that you feel you've eaten more meals together, you've been tighter as a family, where God has brought us from. But it seems that wedding and births and so many Christmases tend to blur around the edges. We remember the day of the last earthquake, tornado, or hurricane. But forget the dates of our children's spiritual birthdays, when they came to Christ, when they were baptized. The same was true in Father in Esther's day. The Jews would have looked back to the insidious edict and diabolical plot to exterminate them, and they would have sighed. And the negative feelings would have came like a tidal wave or tsunami and washed over them again, taking them back to that time. Circumstances. Our reminiscences also tend to cluster around certain circumstances. And often, those circumstances are ringing wet with blood, sweat, and tears. From a divorce to the Great Depression, even to COVID-19, the memories we hang out to dry are dripping with hardship. The closed lines in Esther's day were no different. The Jews would have remembered the hardship of living on borrowed time, slated for destruction doomed to die, and they would have sighed. Decisions. All of us have made wrong decisions in our lives. And many of us are still 
making monthly payments on those decisions. The bills that come do arrive in the forms of shame and guilt and remorse. The accounting was no different in Esther's day. Esther could have regretted her hesitation. Mordecai could have hesitated the things that he said. Maybe even if Haman had repented and came uh, and, and been forgiven over his decisions to kill the Jews, he might have felt some remorse. And they would have thought of those things, and they would have sighed. The air would have come out. The whole point of this meandering trip back in time is this. Anyone who focuses on the past and keeps focusing on the past will tend to ache rather than celebrate. Let me repeat that. Anyone who focuses on the past and keeps focusing on the past will tend to ache rather than celebrate. Here's 14 words from Scripture that reveal the secret of celebration. You need to, you need to run this off, write it down, keep it where you can see it every day. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. That is what Paul said. He presses on. Regardless of what has happened in our past, regardless of what baggage that we have brought or are we carrying on our backs, we leave it there. We focus on today. We focus on moving on. I love that. I press on. This is the real theme of Esther. It's not a heartache or holocaust. The story of Esther explains how one of the most... The major celebrations in the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Purim, got started. With that in mind, we turn our attention to Esther 9, and it's a classic illustration of forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on, acknowledging the presence with a celebration. Before we dig into chapter 9, however, let's leave back a few pages to chapter 3. We'll discover the origin of this celebration's name. Before Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, in the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day, from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. That's verses 6 and 7 of chapter 3. The word Pur is an ancient word for lot, similar concept to our dice when we throw dice. Haman cast these lots to determine what day would be most auspicious for the Jews' destruction. The date that he came up with was the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of Adar. But the gears of the universe are not driven by lottery. They are driven by love. And God's love for the Jewish people around Haman ground Haman's plans to a halt. In chapter 9, we find this day of doom was turned into a day of triumph for the Jews. And when the dust had settled and their destiny was safeguarded, a celebration was called for. This is verse 17 through 19 of chapter 9. This was done on the 13th day of the month Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and the 14th of the same month, and they... And they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, the Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. What appeared to be a time of extermination turned into a time of celebration. And it was even named after the very thing that first appeared as a death knell Purim, 
The feast was a festive occasion. It was much like our own day of Thanksgiving when the pilgrims feasted, giving thanks to God for bringing them to the shores of New England and to surviving the rigors of that first harsh winter. The groundswell of celebration came from the Jewish people, but it was Mordecai who made it official in 20 through 28. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month, Adar, and the 15th day of the same month. Annually, because of those days, the Jews rid themselves of their enemies. And it was a month... And it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the adversary of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is the lot, to destroy disturb them and destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. And because of the instructions in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made it a custom for themselves and for their descendants, and for those who for all those who allied themselves with them, with them, so that they should not fail to celebrate these two days according to the regulations and according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. So, just as Jews treasure the ceremonies that bring their past to life, so many Americans treasure Washington, D.C. with its national monuments. Our capital is replete with testimonies to the past, like the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. The mason stones and chiseled marble give us places where we can read, remember, and reflect on our past. They give the past perspective, and significance, and they turn our sighs into smiles of gratitude, or at least that they should. It'd be great if we had the opportunity to go back in our history and change everything that we don't like, everything that went wrong, but it happened to get us where we're at today, and we have to hang on to that for the fact it helps us remember who we are, where we came from the choices that we made, and hopefully better choices for our world and for all human beings, actually. We need to face the future with a reminder. The establishment of Purim is a permanent custom that takes place in verses 29 through 32. And then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And he sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, namely words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants, with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentations. 
And the command of Esther established these customs of Purim, and it was written in the book. You realize to this day, Purim is celebrated every year among the Jewish people. In fact, when Jews gather to hear the reading of the book of Esther, they participate in the story by booing and hissing every time Haman's name is named and cheering whenever Mordecai's name is mentioned. That's a great tradition, is it not, that they felt sacred? Instead of looking back with a heavy sigh or a saddened heart, the Jews treat Purim as a time of fun and feasting and giving gifts. So what does all this say to us today? When most of us think back on our past, our thoughts are tinged with remorse and disappointment. Thumbing through the photo albums of our minds, the details of the past may fade around the pages while the mistakes we made stand out in sharp relief. It's like they leap off the page to a degree. In photo after photo, we relive those mistakes. Mistakes that involve people, events, circumstances, and decisions. But those photos should not discourage us as we look at ourselves today. We should be encouraged that we're different people than we were back then. We've changed. We've grown. We've learned from our mistakes, hopefully. All this with God's help. And hopefully you're not the same person who signed on with Jesus, who got in the boat with Jesus. Because of your faith in Him, because of what the Holy Spirit has revealed to you, because of your study, because of your prayer life, you have become a lot more mature person in Christ. You know, you get my age, you look back and you think about your childhood or your teenage years, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and see the change. I can see the change in my own life. I'm not the same person that I was. Still have the same name, same fingerprints, same DNA, but... I'm not the same person, and it's because of God. Many of us, however, don't look through our mental photo albums that way. We groan and moan over what we've wasted, over what we've done, what we've not done, over over things said or unsaid. Before the pity party goes too far, remember, unending remorse and shame never make anybody better or has brought anyone to maturity. Instead, it has this great tendency to make us bitter. You like being around bitter people? It takes another whole inner meaning because nothing's ever right. Everything is always wrong. You can't bring up a positive statement until they take it down the negative road. You don't want to become that person. So if the past makes you squirm in your seat this morning, let me give you some, a couple of pieces of advice. One is a suggestion. The other one is a warning. The suggestion is this, raise up a mental memorial to turn your sadness into celebration. A story about a small town in Alabama illustrates the point. One year, the farmers of this area were anticipating a bumper crop of cotton. The weather, everything had made it just perfect. But then the bull weevil invaded and destroyed the economy in that small rural town. Not to be defeated, one of the farmers got the idea of planting peanuts instead a crop that the bull weevil won't touch. The idea caught on before long the economy was recovered. The town later came to be known as Enterprise, Alabama. And do you know what they did? 
They raised a monument to the bull weevil. It's there to this day. That, that's wild. That's just a wild thing. But they can look back at that and they see the past where defeat became victory for them. On the heels of that suggestion comes a warning. Don't turn your memorial into a shrine. The memorial is merely a reminder. It's the good that the mental monument represents is what we need to remember. The example of a monument turned into a shrine is found in 2 Kings 18.4. The bronze serpent that God used to bring healing to any Israelite who had been snake-bitten in Numbers 21 had been preserved as a memorial, but it later became revered as a shrine. And the Israelites began to burn incense to it. It became an idol. So remember, after the ache of whatever that ache is in your heart, you need to celebrate. But don't let the celebration become an end to itself. It's like the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It should be a memorial, not a shrine. It shouldn't be something we do out of habit, because we were made to do it, whatever. It's a memorial that Jesus told us to always remember and celebrate his victory over sin and death, which, as we embrace him, becomes our victory. All of us have skeletons in our closets, do we not, that rattle in shame testimony against our past. But those memories are not there to haunt us. They are there to help us, to help us learn, to understand, forgive, to love, to do what's right, to make restitution if necessary, and trust God for strength and for healing. When God looks at our lives, He looks at them through the clean lenses of forgiveness for us. So let's remember this great love and sacrifice that God gives us, abundant life in this world, John 10.10, and eternal life in the next when it comes our time to cross that river. I say this every time I become a broken record sometimes, but how can you have a prayer come out of your heart and your mind that the words even come close to thanking God for what he's done for us and what he continues to do every day? Let's pray. Lord, we pray for this bread that represents your body that was broken for us and for your blood that was shed, that we might live free, that we might live an abundant life, guilt-free, full of hope and joy and promise every single day of our lives. The gratitude is, is overwhelming. So we do this this morning in your honor, for you, to remember you, and to celebrate that great victory, Jesus, that you've given in our lives and given us the power to overcome whatever befalls us. Thanks again for loving us, God. May this have a significant meaning for each one of us that partake in it this morning. We ask these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen. This is what the Lord himself has said about his table. And I passed it on to you before, that on the night when Jesus betrayed him, the Lord Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks to God for it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take this and eat it. This is my body, 
which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new agreement between God and you that has been established and set in motion by my blood. Do this in remembrance of me whenever you drink it. Thanks again, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for these folks. Thank you for our church and our family. When we're in the body of Christ, that family's large and scattered throughout the world. So right now, Lord, I just ask a blessing on these folks. Continue uh, to guide and direct us and help us to reach out to you, Lord, and allow you to do that in our lives. I thank you for our church, Lord, and I'm sure miss them. And uh, I just pray, God, that, um, uh, that you're keeping them strong in you. We look forward to that day when we're back together. We ask these things in your name. Amen. May this remembrance bring you peace and love this morning. And let us live beloved as Philippians 3, 13 and 14 tells us. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward for what lies ahead, I press on. So I say to you this morning, press on in Christ, people whom I love. God bless you.